0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African-Americans. We have survived the Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on poverty, War on Drugs, the War on Terror, the Age of Obama, and now the Age of Trump. We have a lot to say and a lot of people we want to talk to before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk about Harvard's undisclosed racist past, the Harvard branch of the Ku Klux Klan. Specifically, about a 1924 class day photograph of 10 students in full KKK, Garb sitting at the foot of the John Harvard statue in Harvard Yard. One Klansman is sitting in the lap of John Harvard. Our guest is Simon Levian, the sophomore Crimson reporter who found the photos and wrote the story. With me are four of my black classmates: John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Ezra Griffith from New Haven. George Jones from Atlanta, and Jerry Secundi from Pasadena. Plus, we are joined by classmates Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Cindy Waddle from Tuscany, Italy, Nick Bancroft from Medfield, Massachusetts, Mason Morfitt from Freeport, Maine, Doug Shapiro from Louisville, Kentucky, Alden Briscoe from San Mateo, Ken Manister from Los Altos, George Allen from Los Angeles, and Fred Gardner from Almeda, California. Here's Crimson reporter Simon Levian talking about the reaction to his story.
1: There's been two sort of spheres of reactions, I think. Um, there's been a lot of people who are like, I'm really shocked that this happens. This happened at Harvard. And then also, too, I'm not at all shocked that this happened at Harvard. Um, so there's this sort of like dichotomy that seems to be like happening among the reactions. Um, One thing I noticed was that there was only, I think, a handful of people who I had talked to either like before or after the publication, of the article, who was like, oh, I knew there was a KKK at Harvard. Um, One of the professors in the African and African-American studies department, Werner Solars, he told me that he had like, the KKK had showed up in his research because he was looking into like Harvard's history during the Lowell years, during President Lowell's years in the 20s. And he said the KKK showed up, but he didn't really explore it further. Um, so that was, I guess, the most visible reaction that I've had about like someone knowing about the KKK. Other than that, nobody really seemed to know any, any like concrete information about it. So I was really happy that I was able to sort of bring this history to light and sort of make it uh, more comprehensible than uh, it has ever been before. So, yeah.
0: And what was the reaction at the paper? Uh, pretty much the article.
1: Oh, it was really great. I was really happy to see that um, a lot of my colleagues were reading it, engaging with it as well. Um, yeah, it, it was really, really just awesome because like I, I put so much work into it. A lot of my uh, my friends who were co-writers like shared it on like their social media and stuff, and it was just really, really great to see. I, I got a lot of messages mm-hmm. um, from both people who I was like maybe mildly acquainted with at Harvard or total like people I've never met before just like a professor at like another university like, hey, I read your piece. This is so fascinating. Um, and some acquaintances were like, I I know you've never talked before, but I read your piece and I found it really, really interesting. Thank you for writing about this. I was really, really encouraged, um, but yeah.
0: One of the things that you come away with from the article that Harvard was pretty much remiss in terms of what has been or is remiss and not examining what happened in the, uh, I guess the 20th century. In terms yeah. Of yeah, tell us about that.
1: That's one of the most interesting components, I think. Um, I talked to several scholars who are part of the Legacy of Slavery Initiative, which is this new like presidential committee that um, President Bacow, I, I still don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but President Bacow convened, um, I think 2019, to sort of study the university's like residual ties to like the institution of slavery. And looking at their public documents, like what they like the scope of their research is. In addition, with talking to the director of that program and two other professors on it, it's really unclear how much emphasis the 20th century will have in their efforts. I talked to the director, who is um, the Radcliffe Dean Tamiko Tomiko, uh, Brown-Nagin, and she said that there will only be allusions to the 20th century in the in the eventual report, which should be coming out in the winter, and a lot of the people I talked to of several scholars who've studied Harvard history and like this time period found that pretty disappointing because there's obviously so much sort of, there's just so many different residues of slavery, like the KKK, for example, that are basically uncatalogued and like not fully well understood that are just lying in this 100 year period that the university hasn't really fully touched or reconciled with. Um, one of the things that the African and African American his studies professor told me Werner Solers he said that like it's more important to study the 20th century because it's like lasting connections to like today the 21st century are just so much clearer than that of like the 16 or 1700s. So I found that and and many other people found that a very compelling argument to really include this time period in their efforts of studying Harvard and slavery what that connection is because there are clearly many sort of holdovers from. like the antebellum south and so forth like in the form of the kkk and screenings of the birth screenings of um griffith's 1915 birth of a nation which are also held on campus at least four times from what i could find in my um my search my archival search so there are a lot of these different like moments that are not really well cataloged beyond like an occasional news clipping or i found some like archival document like hidden away and like the Harvard libraries, right? But it's not really all put together on one page, you know, it's not like chronolo- chronologized or like anthologized in any meaningful way. So I think what many people I've talked to said is that the initiative really needs to put a greater emphasis on the 20th century.
0: And did you encounter similar activity on other Ivy League campuses at about the same time?
1: Um, you know, that wasn't really a, a huge focus of my efforts. I was kind of trying to look into that as well briefly, um, but I didn't make much headway um, since I, I, I had trouble actually accessing some of the like the Yale libraries uh, uh, stuff. I wanted to see if they had something along those lines. Okay. I do know that uh, as far as I remember, there was this article about like the KKK proper trying to purchase a university near Princeton, New Jersey in the 20s, at least a college. Um, like a very small one. I believe it's defunct now, but I couldn't find much more information about that. Um, yeah, there were just a few little tidbits, but I didn't explore that area much further in my own research. Right,
2: Right. Well, I've been coming across a number of articles recently about, about Lowell. And I just wondered what, what Simon found about him and whether he wanted to add anything else, uh, it's it's not a type of history that I have particularly followed, although I've I've read some of the stuff going on in other universities. I mean, Georgetown is one, and uh, a lot of us here at Yale have been very impressed with what went on at Brown, uh, with the I forgot the president's name, the woman, black woman. Yep. Uh, she she did some intriguing things that that certainly Yale never engaged in, and Yale got into a lot of trouble trying to think through the. The renaming of, uh, well, we call them colleges. Uh, Harvard call them houses. The renaming uh, be, uh, got because they hadn't had real significant principles on which to base their decision making. But uh, I've been coming across uh, stuff about Lowell, and apparently he was a very well known. Um, Someone with a with a president with a point of view and and anti-black and anti-female and so on. I wonder what what Simon had encountered. Looking at that period in the nineteen twenties and so on, and also uh, whether he can tell us anything about what the current students are thinking about. The increasingly common findings and commentary on law.
1: Yeah, so that's definitely an interesting thread, I would say. Um, talked to two scholars who had studied Lowell's presidency um, as a part of my research process. And both of them had said that Lowell was just like his presidency was essentially regressive and behind the times. And even by like the social values of the 1920s that they argued, um, he was still very much like antiquated and like not sort of at the head of ahead of things in terms of like the social climate of the day. for example, I think it was Jerry Carabel, who was a sociologist at UC Berkeley. He told me that, and this is one of my personal favorite quotes from the article: was that um, Lowell was prejudiced in each and every single way that had, like, contemporary relevance. So he said that Lowell was an imperialist, a sexist, a racist, an anti-Semite, and he kind of just went on. And <laughs> he said that Lowell essentially checked all the boxes, whereas many few people in his time would right. check every single box, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that that's, that was kind of, I guess, shocking to hear. Um, Zachary B. Novak, who is a history lecturer, and he teaches, and he's mentioned in my article as well, he teaches a course on Harvard history. <laughs> and he told me that... Um, <laughs> Lowell's years were some of like Harvard's most regressive and his suggestion and Karabal's suggestion are that one of Harvard's first and most important steps to sort of like understanding and reconciling with its history is to take Lowell's name down from Lowell House. Um, That has sort of mixed reactions of, as you might imagine, among the students. There are several other articles about this in the Crimson, but There was a committee formed in Lowell House like by the faculty deans sometime last year, I believe to review a potential name change. Um, But I'm uncertain of the status on that like uh, committee. The presidential, uh, there was also a presidential committee that was formed to survey like a broader sort of set of guidelines to see if they can make a set of guidelines to review potential name changes. But that committee has also not been finalized. So the discussions are sort of ongoing. But there certainly is a push from students that they want Lowell House renamed. Um, Novak did say to me, though, that like, well, this is sort of a very visible step. It's also kind of surface level. You know, it's like it's a name change, right? It's not any sort of structural change. But then again, he still said it's an important first step to take. So that's kind of just the survey of like the Lowell conversation that I've been sort of cued into based upon like my research and what I've seen on campus.
0: Simon, uh, this is Jerry Secundi. Um, I may, maybe I misunderstood you when you were saying that Lowell perhaps was out of step with the Times. I think he was very much in step with the Times. Uh, looking at that, that photograph, I must admit it was absolutely gut-wrenching to me, but not surprising. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and in August of 1925, 25,000 members of the KKK marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in full regalia right during the presidency of Lowell is what it amounts to. So there was great sympathy for the KKK. It was a very, very popular movement at that time. So uh, he was an absolute bigot and racist, but I don't know that he was out of step.
1: Yeah, I will. I'll add on that for sure that like at the KKK's height is definitely where in my own archival research, like, of course, the KKK shows up in like its greatest force at Harvard. Like around the time you said, like 23, 24, that was when I found most of the articles and references of a KKK branch at Harvard.
3: But did they have the member, if they were so proud and so uh, active and accepted, then what about the identification of the members?
1: You know, that's, that's really one of the hardest things. I was really trying to figure that out myself. And I, I, even, took a, like a, a moment to look at those photos. And if you zoom in, you can kind of see their eyes. So they have glasses underneath like their hoods and so forth. But um, the Crimson articles, and this is something interesting that I found, have this little sort of box attached to them, like a newspaper clipping from the archives. And it says it was the Crimsons quote unquote traditional policy at the time to give that give the clansmen who talked to the Crimson anonymity. So none of them are named throughout the course of the Crimson's, like very minimal reporting, honestly, on the Klan's presence at Harvard. So there are no names within like the campus reports there. Um, There were a few other documents I found referring to the Harvard Klan, but I could not find any names, which I found interesting because one thing I had noticed from the research is that the KKK kind of had like its, its half existence on campus. Like it was very present enough that, like articles are written about it but not so present enough that like everyone would know who the members are you know it's kind of like half secret to some extent is from is what i've seen in the in the uh archival documents um one of the other articles said they were operating under considerable secrecy where and were considering going forward with like a public platform but i couldn't sort of find any materials of what that public platform was and if it ever actually came out in any form or some sort um, because that's kind of where the archives stop right around 1924 in terms of like, clan stuff as far as I could tell and on campus.
3: There, there must be a bunch of academic research on the Klan uh, and, and I haven't read any of it but I would say that anecdotally what I have heard is that it it was kind of a cover organization in the sense that when when people were uncovered you know somebody's mask came off it was the local head of the bank or the local lawyer or the doctor or or you know upstanding citizens of the of the town who were members and I, I I'm assuming that that's true although as I say that's kind of anecdotal
1: you know I, I couldn't find any documents to sort of su- like supplement that idea however, um novak did tell me and this is sort of a common sentiment that of course like in the 20s harvard was kind of just a mouthpiece of like the protestant upper class so it was sort of like these very prominent members of society as you might imagine um that had a lot of sort of monetary or just like like family privilege right so it wouldn't be shocking at least to him like if their hoods came off and these were like you know, members of prominent like Boston families and so forth. Um, So I think that's kind of in line with what um, you were saying.
3: But from another point of view, it's a good thing. It says something about the society and the communities that people like that were skulking around, hiding and uh, reluctant to reveal their identities, because obviously that means that they knew a lot of people would oppose them and uh, show a lot of contempt toward them.
1: Yeah, so I did find that there was some evidence of pushback um, among the students. There was this club called the Blue Shirts Club, which had, it's sort of just like a general, like, social, an organization with some social, like, social and progressive goals that was formed around the same time of the Klan at Harvard, and one of their main proponents or their main things that they were pushing for was that the Klan, like, cannot be on campus, you know, and one thing i did find interesting though is that they had this list that's sequential of like all the different items and like that are part of their platform because they actually released their platform and cars like they they were super against having cars on campus and that was like way way above their condemnation of the clan so it kind of just shows that like even while there was pushback um the priorities aren't exactly you know there right um but maybe and,
3: there's an article about them i never heard of them but it sounds yeah sweet does so, get a little attention
1: uh, I tried to find more information on them, but beyond like this public platform and several articles that were swirling around um about their like like formation, I couldn't find much evidence of like their prolonged existence beyond those initial announcements so it's really unclear to, to say like how much opposition they mounted to the Klan on campus if any um and whether the kKK on campus had any other like detractors or cr- or critics so that's kind of just like the sense that I get from the research that I've done. But I had this very wide range of conversation with Zach Novak, who's the Harvard historian. And he and I asked him very bluntly, it's like, was Harvard essentially ahead of the times? Or were they like about like at the racial climate of the time? Or were they behind it? And he said it's not very linear. Like there are different times in Harvard history where um, Harvard is more socially progressive and be sort of, average of America and other times where it is not like the Lowell years. Um, One thing that he said in particular, which I found interesting was that um, during the civil rights era, more broadly, um, within his own research, he said that there is not much evidence of like many early protests or demonstrations in support of civil rights only until like the latter half, like when it sort of starts to intermingle with like the anti-Vietnam War protests, like in the late 60s, early 70s, is only when you really see students starting to take action. Whereas in other parts of the country and on many other college campuses, especially out West, you might've seen more protests and so forth earlier on in the civil rights movement. So I don't know if that's like, accurate to sort of your experiences at this time at Harvard but um, that's kind of what he has told me about um, like like the campus climate at that current moment um, for the 1920s it's harder to say um, scholars I've talked to have been like some it's like Lowell's kind of just on point and sort of epitomizes the era others are like even at the same time that he is very sort of emblematic of the racial climate he is still far far behind um, what like Harvard as the bastion of liberalism, as it had been called, should have been. Um, So there's sort of differing differing views, but Harvard has been at times behind the times, at times behind the times, Um, and another time sort of matching up with the climate.
0: That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast And you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.